0: Verses forty-four through forty-nine. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land, until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the certain the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the
1: Lord. Well, we are here this morning to remember the death of the eternal Son of God. Not just this morning, but every morning. This is the heart of our fellowship together. We preach Christ crucified, as the Apostle Paul wrote. And not just in our preaching, but as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death. So to put Christ first, as we've named ourselves, is to put the cross front and center, not just as an architectural feature, although we pray that's a helpful reminder. We put the cross front and center in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our lives. So the event recorded in today's sermon text, which Jace read for us, is the event that defines us as a church. It's the core of our faith, the core of our message. Christ crucified. That is what we are to turn our hearts to this morning. Don't usually do this, but will you join me in in prayer uh, as we consider this text? Father, uh, we are in need of you in every way. As we consider the, the death of the eternal Son of God, our hearts and minds are simply incapable of comprehending but would you open us to see a truth that you have spoken to us in your word that you might help help us to know the peerless worth of your son whom you gave for us so that we might turn from our idolatry of earthly things to grow ever deeper in our love for you and our wonder and praise for who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. One thing to notice that's interesting about Luke's account, he doesn't really describe the event itself, either in graphic terms of what physically is going on uh, with Jesus' body, or in abstract theological terms, really. Instead, Luke invites us to consider the weight and meaning of the cross by showing what I'm going to call a series of responses to the death of Christ. So our outline for those of you who like to take notes is Simply to look at the responses to the death of Christ in three areas, or three responses—really, three groups of responses. The first two of those areas are not really the responses of human beings, but in fact, uh, works of God Himself. And of those first two, the first one actually has two parts. So I've just—I've just made the outline really confusing. But there's three sections. I'll say what they are as we go, and I'll just move on at this point so you know what I'm talking about. The first response is in the realm of creation, and this is what we see in the first two verses here. Luke tells us it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. It's a little bit more complicated than this, but the sixth hour to the ninth hour on the clock, kind of clock or time system that Luke is using is basically from noon uh, to somewhere around 3 p.m., so peak daylight hours, right, when the sun is typically at its brightest and typically burning hottest. I mean, the sun itself in the sky, obviously, you know, however many light years away is, is not light years, but light minutes, I guess, but it's always burning the same temperature. Well, maybe it's not. I don't know. I'm not a physicist. I, I, I wandered into, I should just let it go, right, but it's when we experience the sun at its brightest, Right. It's when the sun is at its brightest, except here in Luke chapter 23, it isn't. There's darkness over the whole land. The sun's light has failed. Now, this wasn't an eclipse because solar eclipses don't give you three hours of darkness. And they're also impossible to happen during a full moon. We know this was a full moon because it was Passover uh, the date of passover was set by a lunar calendar even today that's why we celebrate easter on the first sunday after the first full moon of spring all that to say this is a supernatural event as the hymn says well might the sun and darkness hide and shut his glories in when christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin so an important theme in the old testament is that God's judgment is a kind of uncreation or decreation, however you want to say it, where God undoes the work that He did at creation. You can see that in the flood in Genesis one nine. God said, "Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let dry land appear." That's creation. In the days of Noah, of course, God summons water to cover the dry land once again. It's undoing. His work of creation. And the prophets, as several prophets, speak occasionally of the day of the Lord, which means that the ultimate final judgment of God that is coming, as a day when this uncreation goes back to the point where God said, let there be light, all the way back to the beginning. Uh, we see that in Amos chapter 8, verse 9. says, On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon, And darkened the earth in broad daylight. So the sun going down at noon or not giving its light at noon seems to be a direct prophecy about what's going on here in Luke 23, right? The sun, its light failed at noon. Although, in the context of Amos 8, Amos is talking about God's coming judgment on Israel for their idolatry, for their injustice, which historically has already happened. However, that judgment of Israel itself points forward to an even greater judgment, the full and final day of the Lord, the day when God judges all the earth. So what the sun is showing us, ironically by withdrawing its light, is that judgment day has already come on the cross of Christ. To cash in a $10 word, I could say the cross is a prolepsis of the final judgment that means that the final judgment which is a future event broke into the present on that day on that first good friday judgment came early in the cross of christ so god it's as if god took the bowls and the censers that we read about in the book of revelation the censers and bowls of god's wrath poured out and let's say loaded them into Doc Brown's DeLorean and set the GPS for circa 33 AD on a Friday afternoon and hurled them on the cross of Christ. So as Christ hung there dying, it wasn't merely the condemnation of the priests and the scribes that he endured, not merely the judgment rendered by Pilate on the cross. Jesus bore nothing less than the final Judgment of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And the result of that is full access and reconciliation to God for all who believe. That's the point of the second part of what I'm calling still this first group of responses. We see in verse 45 the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, Matthew and Mark both mention this tearing of the temple curtain as coming immediately after the death of Christ, but Luke places it here uh, earlier on about 3 hours before. And those kinds of differences bother us sometimes when we read scripture, uh, but we need to remember that unlike modern historical works, these authors weren't expected to give us a precise order of the events, but instead to show us that the meaning of the events in a way that draws out their significance. So Luke puts this tearing of the curtain here not necessarily to say that he thinks Mark is wrong and it actually happened earlier, but because he wants us to consider the meaning of the tearing of the curtain alongside the darkness and the uncreation of judgment. He wants us to interpret the tearing of the curtain alongside the failing of the sun's light and both of these events have to do with the response to the death of Jesus that we see in the realm of creation. They both ultimately go back to Genesis. You say, what on earth am I talking about there? Well, for reasons we won't get into, there's strong evidence that Moses describes the Garden of Eden in terms that his readers would have understood as. Temple language. Maybe you've heard this idea before. The garden was in a sense a temple, a place where God dwelled with his people and which those people were meant to tend and care for, or even expand to fill the whole earth. We know that's not what happened, of course, because Adam's sin, humankind was kicked out of the garden and God put these scary warrior angels called cherubim outside the garden to keep them from returning, to block the entrance, block the way. So the temple was clearly designed to point back to the Garden of Eden. Fast forwarding to the uh, creation of the temple or the, the the building of the temple, it was a place where God would be present with his people, and importantly, it had images of both trees and of those same kinds of angels, the, the cherubim, the warrior angels. There were cherubim woven into the fabric even of this curtain that we're talking about, which separated the rest of the temple from what's called the Holy of Holies, the, the core of the temple, the, the, really the heart of where God was present there and which only one person entered, the high priest, and only on one day a year, the day of atonement. So the temple, think of it this way, at the same time it points to this hope of God's presence with his people and yet the separation because of sin that keeps us away from enjoying his presence fully. And by the way, you can read all of this if you want to know more in an excellent book called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. I can't remember the author. Uh, It's a very easy read. In fact, it's a children's book. It even has pictures. uh, But it is an excellent, excellent theological work uh, tracing this idea of the curtain from creation all the way to um, the cross. But the point is that when the curtain is torn... It tells us that the separation between God and man has been removed. Jesus endured this ultimate judgment, the uncreation of death, so that you and I and all creation can be reconciled to God. It's Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's in Christ, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, Making peace through the blood of his cross. So, to put all of that together, the fruit of our sin is eternal destruction, not only of ourselves, but all creation. If God were to come down and wipe out sin and all of its effects, literally everything would be devastated, <coughs> smoldering ruin. Judgment is decreation. And yet, Christ came and bore that judgment in himself, and as he did so, God himself ripped up the curtain of our separation, ripped up the curtain that separated us from paradise, that separated us from him, so that he can and will make all things new again. So through Christ's sacrifice, we have access to the world that was meant to be, where we will dwell in perfect fellowship with God. We don't have to remain lost in the wilderness. Christ died to bring us home. That's the first response, the response of creation. And this response points us to the judgment and restoration that has already been accomplished for us in Christ, which we now possess by faith and which we will, in God's timing, inherit in its fullness. The second response, then, uh, we'll see... In verse 46, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So this is the response of Christ himself to his own death. Jesus, recognizing that the moment of his death was imminent, Called out with this loud voice expressing trust in his father. This is just a a sidebar, um, but you may have heard that uh, crucifixion, you die of suffocation in in crucifixion. In modern times, there's a theory that hanging on a cross made breathing difficult and eventually victims would suffocate. Uh, There's actually no evidence of this in ancient sources, ancient writers talk about people on the cross. Speaking and even yelling loudly and spitting on people beneath them. It's certainly impossible to cry out with a loud voice as Jesus does if you're unable to breathe, especially since the suffocation theory says it would become increasingly difficult to move air out of your lungs. It took extra effort to uh, exhale, not to inhale. So it's difficult to say what the actual cause of death would be. It's hard to conduct studies of the effects of crucifixion on the human body. Apparently there are ethical issues. Uh, There are probably multiple causes of death that are possible and it could vary from one individual to the next depending on what condition they were in, how badly they were beaten beforehand, what position they're crucified in. Uh, It's a dark and horrifying thing. But whatever the medical mechanism of Christ's death, he sees it coming and responds by leaning on his Father through the words of Scripture. He quotes Psalm 31, verse 5, which is a psalm of David where he's surrounded by his enemies and he prays to God for deliverance. God hears his prayer and saves him. I read the conclusion to that psalm, of course, as our call to worship this morning. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. The whole psalm is about this profound trust in God's justice that empowers David and Jesus, certainly as David's greater son, to hold fast to God, even in extreme distress, knowing that God is the one who judges. One of Jesus' friends, the Apostle Peter, later would write that when Jesus was insulted he did not insult in return when he suffered he did not threaten but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly it's amazing to think that Christ has not been insulting or or threatening anyone I mentioned before first hand accounts of crucifixions we have show most victims insulting and, and spitting on those who gathered to watch them Jesus has been quiet other than Prayer for his enemies, a word of comfort to a repentant criminal. Uh, You're you're probably thinking Matthew and Mark both record what we sometimes call the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another quote from the Psalms. So Jesus certainly is in great pain and distress. Uh, Luke is simply emphasizing Jesus' profound trust in God the Father. I know that many of you are aware that those things can and really normally do go hand in hand, profound trust in God and yet extreme distress. I know many of you have and are wrestling with extreme loss or pain, at the same time clinging to Christ. We've mentioned this before in this sermon series, talking about Christ as our example, but Christ's reliance on God is such a powerful model for us in that the course of his suffering, he's able to speak a sincere warning of judgment, also a prayer of forgiveness for his enemies, a word of assurance for this uh, poor dying criminal. And the key to all of that is his total reliance on God. Jesus is not roaring insults at people or spitting on anyone. He's never done any of that. Not even the cross can shake his perfect trust in God. God. So, what that shows us on the one hand here is is that the cross didn't break the Trinity in, in some way, not even temporarily. Sometimes we're not careful about the way we talk about this, but even as Jesus is enduring the wrath of God, he is also at the same time offering up the perfect obedience that is pleasing to God. Ephesians 5, 2 calls Christ's sacrifice a fragrant offering to God. He's the greater son of David, the true righteous sufferer who entrusts himself to the justice of God. And that is our ultimate hope, the obedience of Christ who perfectly trusted God, perfectly obeyed God, where we could not. So our confidence before God is not to be found by examining the quality of our own faith, which is just a mustard seed, is, is, is all you need, right? The mustard seed itself is a miracle. It's a gift from God. It's capable of moving mountains. It's the evidence of things unseen. It's the victory that overcomes the world. But it's all of those things, not because faith in itself has any power, but because faith looks to Jesus as the one who is the author and perfecter. It's not the strength of our faith that saves, but the strength of the Savior in whom we trust. So we look to him. And that brings us to the final group of responses, which are three responses, all from human beings. I'm going to consider all of these together, Uh, first there's the response of the centurion. This is the man who oversaw the crucifixion. When he saw what had taken place, he praised God saying certainly this man was innocent. He's just witnessed a horrific death in the context of this, this cosmic sign of darkness. His response seems so out of place. You just witnessed a crucifixion of all things and he starts praising God. We might more accurately translate it glorifying God. What is it that impressed him about this? Why is he glorifying God? I mean the darkness itself is surely a tip-off that something is up. This is no ordinary crucifixion but what really seems to impress him here is the character of Christ. Certainly this man was Innocent is how the ESV translates it, but this word in nearly every other instance would be translated righteous. And the word righteous, it definitely includes the idea of innocence, which Luke has been showing us over and over again since Jesus' trials and the the dialogue with the criminals. This man has done nothing wrong. But righteousness goes so far beyond that. It's hard for me to think the centurion is just saying, well, isn't that interesting? This guy is not guilty of these particular charges. No, he's the character of Christ on the cross that must be what impresses him. This centurion has seen, we don't know how many people die by crucifixion, especially since the time he's worked his way up from soldier to centurion. And this man, Jesus of Nazareth, though, strikes him as different somehow because of the character that he displays while suffering and dying. Pause again to consider, I mentioned it before, but the fact that Jesus endured the cross and did not sin for a moment. No bitterness toward his torturers, he prays to forgive them. No unbelief toward God, he says, into into your hand I commit my spirit. No insults coming out of his mouth as the nails are driven through. I can't make it through the most peaceful of days without sin. But here is perfect righteousness in the face of extreme suffering, injustice, and imminent death. And that's the character that makes an impression on this centurion. So it's almost as if without regard for the ghastly setting or the implications of what he's saying, he just kind of blurts out this cry of praise to God for the righteous character that he is seeing in Christ, righteousness that displays uh, th- the way the other gospel writers record this. Certainly, this man was the son of God, the righteousness. It's, it's not a conflict there. They amount to the same thing. And certainly, he said more than just these words, if you began praising God but it amounts to the same thing. It is the righteousness that characterizes one who could only be the son of God. He doesn't seem to finish his thought though. Surely this man was righteous and we just killed him. Surely this man was righteous and I just oversaw his torture and brutal murder. Surely this man was perfect righteousness and he just breathed. Last. That brings us to the response of the crowds, which we see in verse 48. All the crowds who had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. So we instantly move from the centurion's praise to the crowd's lament. Beating their breasts is an expression of deep. Grief, And these crowds, it's kind of hard to keep track sometimes of the different crowds in in this section of Luke, but these are crowds, Luke says, that had assembled for the spectacle. So not necessarily those who had been shouting for Jesus' death, but certainly those who came out to see the spectacle that is crucifixion. Now you and I would probably be disturbed to see any crucifixion and might go home beating our breasts as well, but These crowds were different. Who knows how many crucifixions they had seen. Romans nailed people up by the roadside like billboards. You couldn't not see crucifixion. And this crowd had come out knowing what they would see, and that's why they came, because they wanted to see it. They came out to see the spectacle. But when they returned home, they were deeply distressed and grieving for what had just happened. Why? How did they... What was different about this? Well, Luke doesn't put words in their mouths for us to to sort of analyze exactly what they're thinking, but they certainly witnessed the same things that the centurion saw when they saw what had taken place. They saw the cosmic sign of darkness, certainly also saw the righteous character of this man who, while being crucified, loved his enemies, comforted the man dying next to him. So we can't put too fine a point on their psychology as we would like to do to say whether they're genuinely repentant, merely regretful, disturbed. But their actions do show us that something, in a sense, wrong has just happened. Astounding righteousness, brutally murdered. So they grieve. Meanwhile, Jesus' own... His acquaintances stood at a distance and watched. And that's the, the final response in this group, which we see in verse 49. All his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a, dis- at a distance watching these things. Uh, these, by the way, are, if you've been uh, part of the sermon series, there was a group of women following Jesus who had come out to mourn him. And earlier on in this text, he makes that prophecy of... Um, The destruction of Jerusalem to them as well this is a different these are women who had followed him all the way from Galilee people who have been with him from the beginning so these are those we'd identify as the followers of Jesus who had fled and abandoned Jesus for his trial they're still afraid to draw near right they're standing at a distance but they're not ready to head home like the other group the crowds they just stand there and watch I think they have no idea what else to do. Their master has died. They rightly, rightly believed that he is the promised Christ. Now he is dead. What will they do now? We know how the story turns out that Jesus will rise on the third day, as did Luke, Luke's readers, but Luke still manages to leave us with this big gaping question mark at this point. It's like he's just he drops this nuclear bombshell on us, the death of the immortal Son of God, the final judgment of the day of the Lord falling on the righteous Son of God, how on earth do you respond to that? Like the centurion, do we praise God for the perfect righteousness of his Son? Or like the crowds, do we grieve and lament that the perfect Son of God was sacrificed? Or do we simply stand by and stunned silence? What is the right and proper response to this? What ought to be happening in our hearts and minds when we look at the cross? See, I don't think this is one of those cases where we look at these three different responses and we pick the right one. I think what Luke is showing us is that the death of Jesus is so far beyond our Comprehension, our ability to process it intellectually or emotionally, that no single response from us can capture it. Have you ever received a gift that was so extravagant and unexpected that the only words that could come out of your mouth were, I don't know what to say? That's kind of what's going on here. Imagine that you had dug yourself so deeply in debt that the wealthiest man on earth would have to liquidate all of his assets to repay it. And then imagine that the wealthiest man on earth comes to you and says, I've liquidated liquidated all of my assets and repaid your debt. I have made myself poor so you can be free of this. What would your response be? God himself took on human nature so that he could suffer and die, not only to make us free of debt, but to to bestow upon us riches beyond our imagining for all who simply trust in him. How do we respond to that? I'm not sure I know the answer, but I'll close with two thoughts. First, I wonder if that's exactly the point, that our response to it will never be equal to what God has done for us in Christ The glory belongs to him alone. He has done something greater than we could ever have imagined or asked for. We can never fully process it. We are not equal partners with the cross here. It's not as if the cross has simply started a dialogue that we take part in equally or the cross has put the ball in our court and now we respond to it in this or that way. The cross took the ball all the way to the goal and we respond In faith, yes, but what is faith? It's simply saying amen and trusting that the cross has accomplished this for us. And we recognize that there's nothing we can ever do. We don't add to it. We don't build on it. We don't improve it. We can't repay it. Tis mystery all. The immortal dies. Who can explore this strange design in vain The firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all, let earth adore, let angel minds inquire no more. The second thing, though, is that having recognized that no response from us can ever equal the price that Christ has paid for us in Christ, we still recognize then that the cross does change everything for us and drives us to change everything about us. In the words of the hymn that we'll sing in a few moments, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man's, man the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face when his dear cross tears dissolve my heart in thankfulness melt my eyes in tears but drops of grief can never repay the debt of love i owe here lord i give myself away it is all that i can do i don't think he's saying that tears aren't enough i need to give myself away too and then i'll repay it that won't repay it either nothing will repay but What else can we do but give ourselves? Not because we earn anything. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son. Glory be to God. Let's pray. Father, What you have done for us through your Son is beyond our comprehension in so many ways. For us to say and be able to sing as we did earlier, that thou, my God, should die for me. We wrestle in our minds to understand how this can even be. But we also wrestle with why it should be that you would choose freely to give your son that he would choose to go endure the cross, endure the ultimate judgment for sinners like us. Unworthy so great a redemption or any redemption. And yet this shows us who you are, our Father, full of grace and full of love for us. This is not about who we are, but about who you are, not about what we have done or ever could do, but about what you have done for us in Christ. Help us to the extent that we are able, with our limited minds and limited and sinful, faltering hearts, help us to grasp the heights of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, the immeasurable riches that are ours. Forbid it, Lord, that we should boast in anything else but the cross of Christ, that we should trust in anything else, whether our own good works, our own theological precision, our own Love for you and others, even the strength of our faith itself. None of these is enough, but Christ is enough. Thank you for what you have done for us and help us to live lives that are pleasing to you, not because we need to, to earn the favor that's already ours in Christ, but simply that we might display your glory, that you might be glorified in us. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.